0: Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank.
1: Let's get started. So, welcome to the Startup Tank. And um, yeah, my name is not Matt Ward. <laughs> my name is Jenna Lee. Um, and uh, personally, I'm an angel investor. I also lead a uh, climate tech syndicate, and I work with Matt at Forward. VC, and since Matt can't be here for the entire show today, so I'm stepping in uh, my first time, so please forgive me for any hiccups or just laugh about it. <laughs> and today we have uh, three investor panelists. Um, we have Matthew from uh, Anthro Ventures, who is not here yet we also have dennis clark from zion ventures calling in from san francisco we have silas manor calling uh representing clean techies podcast calling in from new york so i will let you guys introduce yourselves starting with silas
2: hi i'm silas manor uh calling from new york as as she mentioned i represent uh, i work as a climate tech headhunter for next wave partners Uh, Serving climate tech and sustainability companies, and then also am the host and founder of the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs. And I'm super happy to be here.
1: Great, and Dennis, a few words about yourself and Zion Ventures.
2: Sure. Uh, Good
3: day, everybody. It's a pleasure to be back on the the tank. Thank you for uh, having me. Uh, My name is Dennis Clark. I'm an investment director at uh, Zion Ventures. Um, Xeon Ventures invests across advanced materials, uh, energy transition, sustainability, and human health. Uh, We primarily do Series A and Series B investments uh, in companies in North America uh, and Europe uh, at this stage. Um, And uh, yeah, we're uh, also the corporate venture capital arm of Xeon Corporation, a large elastomer, polymer, and specialty materials company uh, headquartered in Japan, but with operations globally. Uh, Looking forward to uh, all of the pitches today. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Welcome, Dennis. Um, And a few brief words about Forward VC. So please check our website to access a really super great VC database on all things climate tech. And if you're not part of our Climate Techies WhatsApp group, there are an abundance of various ones based on your interest and topic. Uh, Feel free to join those in WhatsApp that you can also find the Link in all those informations on forward.vc. Um, and for the startup tank, the format. So tonight we have five different startups. They will all have five minutes to pitch um, followed by 15 minutes of Q&A. And at the end of the session tonight, each of our panelists will be selecting their favorite of the evening. Okay, so... Um, we can get started. How about with Ibin um, Hu.
4: Hey, thank you. Okay, then I will share my screen. Please let me know, can you see it? Okay, great. Um, hello everyone, my name is Eben Hu. I am co-founder of Bitvisor. Um, Bitpfizer is a renewable energy company from Germany. We acquire free land plots in Norway and live, develop them uh, into renewable energy sites. Um, how does it work? Um, so the B2B customer come to us if they want to utilize infrastructure for powered land. What uh, we earn here is the commercial rate on the electric power. Um, the B2B customer can also come to us to utilize the data center co-location services. In this case, we will also earn a commission rate on the electric electric power, plus a service fee. Both service fee and um, commission rate on the electric power are monthly. So we earn a recurring revenue, plus our return rate is extremely low because all the projects here are infrastructure projects. Um, since incorporation in the middle of 22 um, bitvisor has already brought first renewable site online with six megawatt um, capacity so um, it generates um, turnover since March 23 since online and the cash flow of this site will be positive from this month um, in our um, roadmap we'll have totally 39 megawatt uh, megawatt capacity to Q224. According to our market research, um, the renewable energy markets uh, market and green infrastructure market will both experience a growth of um, between 250% and 350%. Um, Well, here you can see an overview of all the projects we're having. Apart from the first site, which is already online this year, we've um, acquired four additional sites um, in different capacity sizes, um, all of them will give us total capacity of 39 megawatt and generate a revenue an annual revenue of 14 million euro from 2024. Um, here you can have a glance on our first megawatt uh, f- uh, first site with six megawatt in Gopner. Um, Gopner is a small town in middle um, northern part of Norway. So it is the biggest 100% liquid cooled HPC installation in Europe, and we use the wasted heat in the site to support the R&D activities in the company. Um, very proud to also to introduce um, our latest site next to the Oslo city. Um, the location is like not far away from the city center, and we have um, two layers in the whole um, site. The first layer is the rooftop solar park. Which have 2.7 gigawatt hour product power production per year. And the second layer is the, um, the floor beneath the fourth floor with about five megawatt um, power capacity for AI workloads. So, in this building, we achieved a circular economy with that we consume our own solar energy in our own data center to support AI applications. Um, so the de- so this data set this site will only focus on AI applications, co-location services, and GPU as a service. Um, in mm-hmm. the long run, um, as a co-founder, I would say all of um, us, the co-founders, speak carbon negativity. So what we are doing now with the wasted heat from the AI workloads is to support the R and D activities. Here we've already negotiated with our strategic partner to use waste heat to grow IJ production. The, the products will be used in two ways. We can use in fish farm in Norway or use them to grow fertilizer. So in the long run, we'd like to achieve um, a negative CO2 emission. Um, short introduction to the um, co-founding team. We are co- four co-founders with profound industry experiences since 2015 in renewable energy, data center, cloud infrastructure industries. Um, all of us, we've achieved 141 megawatt um, electric capacity in total. Um, a fun fact is, in 2021, our CEO, Michel Buti, was in the Bloomberg TV for his contribution in renewable energy data sites. Um, now, Bitvisor is raising Series A with 11 million Euro. The fund will be used and um, focused um, in the construction work for all the new sites and to accelerate the company growth. So if you have any question, please raise your hand and feel free to reach out. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the presentation. Perfect timing. <laughs> so, Dennis um, or Silas, if you have any questions or uh, comments.
3: Sure, I'll I'll start. Um, So thank you very much for the presentation evening. A very interesting uh, business uh, and and solution. Um, A few questions on on kind of what you're doing in a little bit more detail on the energy Mm -hmm. side. Um, So you mentioned solar, are you looking across different types of energy sources? Um, and when we think about your coupling the data centers with these um, energy, uh, renewable energy um, installations, how do we think about kind of reliability and flexibility uh, since you're leveraging renewable energy sources or using energy storage? Um, and how do you manage the storage and distribution uh, for continuous operations of, this, of the sites? Thank you.
4: Yeah. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, very good question. So, um, So, the solar park we're using is connected to the grid. We know that um, the solar energy is not, cons- uh, is not constant. So in the evening, there will be no energy. So what we do is we do not want to use energy storage, which is the battery, and because it's keto intensive And so we use the solar power in the morning, and in the evening, we use the grid power. So um, another fun fact is in Norway, 99%, 99.6% of the energy are renewable. That's why the whole data center is renewable.
3: Uh, thank you. And just one quick follow up on that. So when we think about the the business model and the cost structure of your business, can you share a little bit more about um, you know how you generate revenue with a customer over time and what the cost structure looks like?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, at the beginning, um, the the um, the capital will be invested, infrastructure built out. So at the beginning, so the capital will be very high at the beginning. Since um, after the whole construction work is done. So we will onboard our customer. For instance, we have a five megawatt site. The customer, for for, for example, Dennis, you come to us, you say, okay, I would like to use, utilize two megawatt for hydrogen production. So you will bring your production infrastructure production plan to our site and it's a plug and play. So in a moment when your production plan uh, is on, we'll calculate the um, commission rate on the electricity power. That's how we earn money from the customer. So, if, um, for instance, Dennis, you have also have data center racks, you want to want it to be hosted. So, we are also calculate in the same rate plus a service fee because we have to pay our staff in the site, pay for the civilian system, and so on.
2: Great, thank you. Well, one thing, one question from me here would be just to kind of clarify this. It. It's not super clear to me. This is, are you developing projects and then trying to sell them or developing them on behalf of your clients for their own purpose? So for more commercial and industrial uses?
4: Um, we have both. So generally we're, we, um, we develop a project and then we onboard a customer. So we own the project. There are also cases that, for instance, for the data center case, we also have long-term customer. They want to utilize data center customized for them. For let's say five years for the whole company. In this case, we will co-develop it with the customer. That's, I would say, a very special case. In this case, the customer, um, with high probability, they will find they will finance a part of the project as um, a co-ownership.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so so then, in, in, I guess my my other question would be, what what is the differentiating factor or why they would use your service versus another? For this particular uh, project, and what, what, why particularly come to you?
4: Yeah, sure. So, the um, partnership in Norway guarantees us the ex- exclusivity of uh, uh, of power price, and of the location for cooling. Because um, why hosting Norway is because um, the the northern the site is the um, the less power will be used for cooling. First, we have the location. Second, we have a guaranteed low power price when we purchase, purchase the power. Um, so if we have a very low purchase power and the power that we sell to the customer will be also lower. That's um, the two uh, most significant um, unique selling point.
2: Okay, that's understood. And, and in terms of the the latter part of the presentation with utilizing the heat, can you explain that more? I, I wasn't quite able to understand the the. is this something that's, on every, every project you're going to be utilizing this way? Was that just a particular nuance for that project? For the technical difficulties.
4: Um, so last, sorry, could you please repeat your question? My,
2: yep. yeah, project? yeah, no worries. The, the question is on the utilization of the heat on the projects you mentioned that at the ending. I wasn't sure if the, is this something that is going to be implemented onto every project because you have a certain focus on you know, uh, data centers. Could you kind of explain the scalability of that and and un- help us understand a little bit better?
4: Um, you mean the scalability of the wasted heat usage or the scalability of the project? Yeah. H-
2: how does this play into your project development? Is this is this a particular nuance that you can bring that other companies don't? Uh, it just I just didn't quite understand why that was brought up in the in the situation. If you're developing renewables projects.
4: Um, well, in particular to um, the wasted heat um, for use cases, because currently the, um, the policies in Norway, they support circular economy, which means um, everything that is, for instance, wasted heat can be used, for example, to heat the water for the civil, um, for the living community. That is, we um, transport heat to the to the water company. So they usually they will heat the water from zero to 70. With our heat, they heat it from 40 to 70, which gives a um will save their cost and save their energy. That's one case. In the other case, in the um, Argent case for, um, for the fish farm, that's also a business model we want to achieve that we sell the energy for, um, for other industries. So um, that we monetize with, with heat and which also means that we have other income in our portfolio, which balances the whole portfolio risk.
2: Understood.
1: Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, Yeah, a no brainer um, for these industrial sites. What are your biggest challenges of today? Um, I think
4: it's construction work. Um it's sometimes um, there are um, delays in the construction work and the weather conditions in the winter are always um, not always predictable. That um, is the biggest challenge we've experienced so far.
1: Okay. And how are you solutioning for that? Um,
4: I would say plan enough um, buffer in budgeting and plan enough time.
1: Okay, great. Um, and in terms of your race, um, what are the major milestones that you're looking at?
4: Um, you mean after Series A? Because in Series mm-hmm. A, it's 11. Um, then we reach the next company valuation. And the Series B, we haven't um, defined yet, but uh, we know that after Series B, we would um, would like to do the IPO.
1: Okay, and then in terms of like business or uh, business milestones or operational milestones, how how have you defined them?
4: Um, of course, we will ad- acquire more um, sites. And strategically, a um, uh, portion of the sites will be um, in renewable energy production, for instance, in hydrogen, in um, solar farm, and so on.
1: Okay, that's clear. Um, All right. Sounds good. If um, everyone is clear on uh, Bitvisor, then uh, I suggest we move on to the next startup. Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. thank you very much, uh, even for your presentation. Um, And I would like to welcome Rainians um, to Pitch Their Startup, which is about patented molecules to render air pollution and CO2 harmless.
6: All right, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. I'm calling in from Los Angeles. Um, Had to get up early for this one, but happy to meet everybody. Um, So let me tell the story first before I even, I'm not sure if the slides are necessary, Um, about, Four or five years ago. Well, first of all, I should say I'm an angel investor, and sometimes I'm the first investor in new uh, technology. Um, And I could talk about my history, or you can look it up on LinkedIn, but nevertheless, about four or five years ago, a retired military gentleman named Mark DiCarlo contacted me and asked me if I'd be the first investor in his new company, which was unnamed at that time. He had been the Um, One of the inventors of IMESA, which is when he was at the U.S. Pentagon um, as an inventor, he invented a system for security for every U.S. military base worldwide. He had to retire for health reasons, and he decided he wanted to solve air pollution. And so he literally read, and this is typical of Mark DiCarlo, and the way he thinks, he read 1100 white papers on what everybody in the world had been doing or was doing in terms of air pollution. He himself is not a gifted inventor. Think of him more as like Sherlock Holmes, like a detective trying to figure out the solution and what everybody is up to and how to put it all together. So when he approached me, he sent me this document that was like a thousand pages long with all of his notes You know, and as an investor, like I barely like seeing a deck that's even 10 slides long, you know, so I wasn't sure what to make of Mark. But he talked me into like understanding that he had discovered a combination of ingredients that had previously been tested by multiple other people, but never put together in the ways that he was doing. And he had filed a patent and he needed help. So I was intrigued by Mark himself. Like when I invest in people or in companies, I'm oftentimes investing in teams or the people, um, not just what they're doing. I found that basically team is absolutely critical. If I'm not going to lose my money. So in this case, I thought Mark DiCarlo, even though he'd never run a business before, he had been literally in the military um, for 20, 30 years. I don't even remember how long. Um, I wanted to basically see if I could build a team around what he was doing. And I was very curious whether he was right or not, because what he was claiming made no sense to me from like a true investor perspective, because he was saying, I've solved air pollution. You know, I've solved how to uh, deal with CO2. So, you know, these are really huge claims. So I started to build a team. We invested some money. I originally took his concepts to the University of California at Riverside, a university here that has all the testing equipment. If you wanna sell a car in the, in California, you have to go through this university or two other locations to be tested and certified. So they had multiple buildings, professors, smart people who understand air pollution better than I was ever gonna be able to do. I brought basically Mark DiCarlo to the university And I said, will you be able to write us a, a, do some sort of an analysis on what Mark is doing and essentially a feasibility study. And we paid for a feasibility study through the professors and a team of students that went and dissected what Mark DiCarlo had created. And shockingly to me, they came back and said, whoa, this might work. So I was like, wow, okay, what does this mean? So at the core of it is a coding. It is literally a coating of ingredients that are easy to obtain around the world. These minerals are not hard to find. In fact, the main one is tarmaline, and there is so much tarmaline that is not being utilized for any industry worldwide that there's no, that this is very inexpensive raw materials. Imagine a coating inside of an exhaust system, and that coating also has within it the ability to transmute molecules from bad to good, including breaking the CO2 molecule without any additional electricity. So when you look at what Bill Gates has invested in, a bunch of these other folks have invested them in, in the CO2 space, they need a massive amount of energy in order to accomplish moving CO2 from its current condition into some sort of a, you know, housing condition or breaking the molecule. The CO two molecule is extraordinarily strong, but we basically, you know, decided I was getting, we were going to pay for independent tests and see if we could actually find out if this is going to work or not. So, long story short is we have now done six independent tests, and we have proven that we basically are eliminating up to ninety six percent of the pollutants, and we are also able to um impact and eliminate over 90 percent of the CO2. And part of our challenge right now is that we've been making the um, the uh, coating basically in a in a house in a kitchen. We had have, we haven't been doing it in a lab, we're not doing it at scale. We're basically doing it just to be able to provide these different companies that are doing the independent tests for us enough material to put on these, any kind of an exhaust system. So imagine a car or a truck or a smokestack. We can literally line the inside of the pipe and we can render all of the bad molecules into better or good. So where we're at right now is, um, and I don't need money today, but I've always been following Ward. He's somehow in my world and he asked if I'd be interested in pitching. And I thought it would make sense to at least start to talk to this community as well. I'm gonna probably be looking for some money later, but at the moment I just raised enough for these next round of tests, because what's happened is lots of Fortune 500 companies are knocking on our door wondering what we're doing. And when they look at the test results that we have so far, they're asking us to now create math models on how we're transmuting the molecules. All the test results we've done right now to date have been, for instance, hooking up um, our exhaust system with our coating in it, which is an off-the-shelf muffler, basically, with our coating in it, to a dirty diesel generator, for example. And just testing, you know, first the bad going into the um, uh, uh, muffler and then what is coming out of the muffler. And those test results were really easy for us to do, and there's lots of places we could do that at. But now we need way more sophisticated levels of testing to try and actually see how we are manipulating, modifying the molecules in the ways that we are, even though there are lots of white papers and studies on on slices and dices of our technology that others had discovered, but never sort of put them all together, but those, those documents and those tests don't really tell the whole story. So, all right, of- Mark. Oh, sorry. Did sorry. My five okay. Sorry well,
1: first, uh, I forgot to start my timer, so that was my bad. And then I got sucked into your story, so then I, yeah, gave you an extra minute there. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, no, super interesting, and sounds like the technology really could be revolutionary, and that you have done, you know, some tests. So, yeah, I guess um, I'll open it up to Dennis and Silas for questions, which I suspect will probably be about how to make a business out of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'd love to jump in. I guess the, the key thing, I've seen a lot of these uh, types of companies that have, you know, technology like the not like this particular, but, you know, something in in relation to this. So I'm curious, what is your plan in the future of of go to market. What's the strategy for, for making money? It.
6: We're just a licensing company. We basically are an IP. We've got multiple patents, and we're in conversations with everybody from Exxon Mobil to um, uh, uh, Volkswagen to just lots of different companies that are also interested in in the pollution space. And everybody that knows of us is watching to see how our testing goes. And we are not ready to sign a licensing deal yet. We've had a few people sniffing around whether they could get in early, but the reality is is we would like to license it to everybody. We're not really keen on the idea of giving an exclusive to anybody because we really think we're the cheapest, least expensive way to solve the um, climate problem at source. So where the pollution and the CO2 is being generated, we want to solve it at that particular spot with our coating. It's so simple, it's ridiculous. And this really could be quite transformative. And the coating is really cheap. I mean, we're calculating that we'll be able to not just capture CO2, but modify it into basically oxygen um, for $8 a ton. And I haven't heard anybody be able to figure out how to do you know, CO2 capture for anything that cheap. We're really looking forward to teaming with major size companies that will take our technology and develop it even further and find ways to put it in, into their products and pay us royalties and advances, which my background is licensing. I used to do licensing in Hollywood, and I honestly, the 100-plus licensing deals I've done mostly are entertainment and not technology, but I totally understand how to do licensing. And from the moment I met Mark DiCarlo, that was the plan. And that still remains the plan. Um, there doesn't make sense for us to commercialize and scale up. Then I have to build a different team. And even though I love building teams for businesses, that's not the team I want to build right now.
2: So aside from the 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 additional testing that you have to do to get proving what you need for those, you know, parties that are interested, what would you say is the other biggest challenge that you have in the near Good future? Question.
6: So our next biggest challenge is, and we just hired a couple of experts for coding so that we can create coatings that are gonna last for quite some time and hopefully outlive the engines or the the devices that they're hooked up to. But um, internally we've created coatings which work for testing, but I wouldn't say that they're um, ready for prime time. That said, experts in the coding business seem to think that our ingredients will blend nicely with existing types of coatings. And so it's just a matter of, we do have to throw some money at this, but we do believe that this isn't reinventing the wheel. It's actually old industry that we just need to get our ingredients working. We're gonna have to do some trial and error to figure out which ones work best, just to make sure that there isn't any decomposing of the coating material itself because of our minerals that we're using.
3: Mark, can I jump in here for a moment? Sorry, I want. To, there's, sure. there's, sorry, there's there's so much to unpack here. Thank you for the for the presentation. I too was sucked in like Gina. Uh, you had me a hello or, or Sherlock Holmes or something. <laughs> um, uh, but can you talk a little bit more? Like you mentioned, like the potential long term long term durability of the coding. Is this something that needs to be reapplied over time? Um, and the second question is around how to think about a system. So if we take the automotive uh, use case, which you described, um, you know, where exactly would the coding be positioned? Is there a waste stream? Like, how should we think about how the system operates with the coding uh, and, the, and the life cycle? Yeah.
6: So there's not a waste stream that we are noticing yet. Um, there may be at a microscopic level something that we're not noticing, and that's what the next level of tests will help to uh, uh, inform us. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's also one of the neat things. We are the coating in a muffler or the piping that's the exhaust system or the smokestack that's basically, you know, at the end of whatever is the industrial process. We think the coating will last and not need to be reapplied. Although if this is now attached to oil refineries, for instance, and those um, that equipment's going to be there for multiple decades there's probably an argument that we're not going to be able to last that long and we may have to do something different, but we just don't know that yet. So our assumption is with regard to a car, there wouldn't be a need for a reapplication for a car. We should be able to live out the life of the car or worse come to worse, a new muffler is put on a car and it'll be a little more expensive than a muffler that you might buy today. But there's a possibility that um, we might be able to eliminate the catalytic converter. And that is a huge expense for the automotive industry. So, you know, I'm pretty sure the economic, one of the things I love about this particular company is the economics. I've invested in companies where the solutions were real, but the economics didn't really work at the end of the day. And what I'm seeing with this is that Nobody that I know yet can touch us with the, on the economic argument. I think we're the least expensive way to solve the problem. That said, there could be a dozen people in garages right now inventing things better that I just don't know about.
3: So there's a number of different applications and markets, as you alluded to, and all of them have their own kind of pros and cons. Knowing what you know about the technology today and the interest you've seen from different uh, verticals, what seems like the the first kind of like the low hanging fruit in terms of what you want to go after as the the target market initially?
6: So it'll, it'll depend on the licensees that we sign and how fast our R and D departments will sort of rev us up. But I think that um, portable generators, where we don't have to worry about being on a product where there's a transportation agency that has to approve and we have to do all that like bureaucratic testing because we're an unknown, but you know there, there's equipment that we can attach ourselves to more easily and cheaply. And I'm sort of envisioning that we'll probably end up in those markets first just because of the simplicity of adding us to them without, you know all the jumps through the hoops to prove what we are for from a safety or a government regulatory standpoint. It gets much more tricky when we get into cars and trucks here in the United States. It's going to take time. You know, We are talking to big automobile manufacturers. They're intrigued, but that process is going to take time. I don't think we're going to solve, I don't think we're going to be everywhere in one or two years. I think it's going to take many years for this to sort of percolate and get out to all the places that it can go. But um, my, I have confidence that because of our six independent tests, um, you know, we're literally eliminating almost 100%, not 100%, but we're almost eliminating all of the air pollutants and the CO2 problem. And this is with independent tests that are not um, as highly not as well done and our and our coding is not as well prepared as I know it will get to be as we go down the path with multiple, licensees whose R&D departments are gonna basically take what we're doing and come up with their own ideas and try different things. And we'll hopefully be able to move from 94% removal of all of these uh, bad elements from our um, atmosphere and our coming out into, um, out of the vehicles of these machines to closer to 100%. Mark DiCarlo thinks based on his research, we should be able to get pretty close. In recent tests, one of the tests was for NOx which is one of the air pollutants that are coming out of automobiles, we did, I think, twice in a row get 100% reduction. So we know that by tweaking our coatings, we're able to, we just need to play around a little bit more with it. It's brand new science. There's only about 25 people in the world who are even touched this with us. And then about 100 companies that are watching us trying to figure out, are we real or is this just As everybody keeps saying, it sounds too good to be true, which is why we're now the next uh, set of tests are going to be done at universities because we, even though we've been hiring independent third parties, we sort of want to present ourselves back more at, at the university level and then maybe take it to some national labs. But my guess is we'll have a licensee signed before we get to the national labs and somebody will start to build prototypes and do some things with what we're doing sooner than a national lab can get yeah, the, because they're just so bureaucratic and there's issues here with at least the US national labs. I we originally built the company during the Trump administration when he, and we thought we were going to have to base this company in Europe instead of in the United States because the Trump administration was totally not helpful in anything that we were talking about but then thankfully he was gone and things are a little more normal in the United States right now. And maybe we can, but it turns out our CEO is a woman from Paris, and one of our key board members is also uh, uh, French. And they've been opening up communications with lots of Europeans and trying to, you know, see where that might all lead. Um, but the, most of the team is in the United States, and our CEO has located to Silicon Valley, and she's, you know, thinking that we're going to become the next big thing. So we'll see how all this plays out. But I do believe that um, Europe is going to play a huge role in what we do. I think this is, you know, I don't know. I think now the U.S. government might start getting involved in this. We've reached out to some government people in the last year, and they are intrigued by what we're doing and would like to see the next set of test results. And so I, re- I recently raised uh, some serious amounts of money to pay for these uh, last tests. These, that I don't think we'll need to do any more tests. After the next round, we think we're done. We're about to eliminate the ability to keep testing. We'll have math formulas for what's happening with the molecules inside the piping system with these next tests. And that should be enough for us to move to the next, to starting to become a licensor.
1: All right. Thank you. Um, We've got one question Um, Can this coating work to change molecules in water as well?
6: We don't know, but it's a possibility. There is uh, moisture that comes through fossil fuels that uh, end up in the exhaust system and our ingredients do use the moisture. It's one of the keys. We have to have some moisture in the um, exhaust system in order for our ingredients to work. But we haven't gotten to the point where we've looked at, uh, for instance, a marine application where the where the system would be actually you know underwater. Don't know that yet.
1: Okay, thanks, Mark. And you touched on the team a little bit. Can you uh, yeah share a little more about who's on the team and perhaps your role and um, yeah? Take it away.
6: So I built the team. We have about I don't know twelve or fifteen people. I twelve to thirteen people, I think, on the team right now. Um, so for the most part, the team is um, what you would expect in an early stage startup. We don't have any like rock star, you know, multi-exit people involved just yet. We have a team of people who are very motivated to help us do all of, we've been in an R&D company basically. So we do have uh, people uh, for, that are on our advisory boards that are out of the major industries that we wanna tackle, that have personal relationships. And that's one of the reasons why a bunch of these Fortune 500 and Fortune 2000 companies even know of us is because of their relationships. Um, But our team is likely to go through a lot of changes when we get through the R&D phase and shift to being a licensing company. But one of the things I did is I did recruit Joe Newlight, who, um, I'm partners with, we built a hydropower plant in Honduras about um, eight years ago together. It was a very interesting project. It's a six megawatt project. And Joe has previously had uh, major exits um, in two companies that he built, one to Amazon, and the other was a major licensing company in Hollywood. So in fact, it was the largest licensing company in Hollywood with regards to digital media that would be used in films or in news agents by news agencies. He sold that company and then I called him up and I said, Joe, I need you to be chairman of Rain Ions. So I do have Joe in the company because he's going to develop our licensing um, uh, software model so we can track and communicate and do this worldwide. And he's also, um, um, I can say, one of the most ethical and nicest guys that I know, uh, besides being very wealthy, um, he's the guy that never wants to be seen. He walked He did a, he walked around uh, India recently, barefoot, looking like the poorest man in the world. He always likes to be in the background. Uh, literally had to pull him out of that world to be chairman. Um, and I, he still doesn't feel comfortable uh, in the spotlight. He guards his anonymity, but he is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He's exactly who I think Brain ions need. So I, I build teams all the time for startups. It's basically the only way my investments don't go down the tubes is by making sure the teams are right or tweaking the teams if they are having to pitch total strangers for money or pitch total strangers for sales. I find people who personally know either the investors or know the buyers, for, for example, and I'm always doing these kinds of additions of talent to startups in order to try and fix and get them ready so that we can sort of blaze that. That's my opinion on how to accelerate a startup is get the right team. And if the startup is stuck, it means they don't have the right team for that moment. So I'm always tinkering and that's what I'll be, continue to be doing with rain ions in the future. I I am on the board. Um, I've been investing in startups for 45 years now, 48 years. and my ba- and I made a lot of money in Hollywood. I worked on Lion King, Jurassic Park, all the Star Trek movies, The Simpsons, on and on and on. I also was a owner of a collectible trading card manufacturer. So uh, Americans that bought baseball cards or football cards probably bought them for me, at least one of my companies. So I, you know, I know how to build companies and be successful. And um, I'm, I believe in this company. I, you know, I, I, I have a. And but what we're missing is connections to European, um, you know, uh, investors and others uh, that are different from the ones that our French folks are able to generate. So,
1: (laughs) no, I mean, I'd love to take this conversation offline. You definitely sound like somebody who has had very, very interesting experiences. But if I can wrap up, I guess, with two questions, what do you see? And you only have three minutes to answer these. (laughs) What do you see as the biggest risk um, for your business? And yeah, you mentioned that the thing that you need help with the most right now is connections with European investors. And so that's one. And what else? What, what else? If you're not raising funds right now, what else can this community help you with?
6: Um, I think, OK, so I think our biggest risk is this weird phenomenon that I've seen one other time where something literally seems too good to be true. And even though you put forward all these test results, you still get that reaction of, well, this doesn't make sense. It seems too good to be true. So my fear is that the next round of tests, which have been asked for by uh, so many of these um, companies that know of us, that when we do them, that they're going to still ask for more tests. And because it's hard for the R&D departments in these companies to believe the outcomes because it makes no sense they've never seen anything like this before and it just doesn't register and I fear that some of the R&D teams are going to not sign off on it so that management and these larger companies will aggressively move forward because they're fearful of it, because they can't explain the phenomenon so hopefully we're going to be able to explain it in enough um, detail to get some early adopters to prove it out so everybody else comes on board my guess is there are companies in Europe who can move this forward faster than a bunch of companies in the United States who are in some of the, that um, are in some states like California where we have regulatory health. Like, you know, that we are so overly regulated. So, you know, and I'm looking for um, an early adopter or early adopters. If any of you know any companies that might be interested in watching and observing our test results with the idea of maybe licensing, Our technology from us and trying to be an early adopter that's kind of where i'm fishing for and hoping you as a community might have some opportunity i may need to raise a little bit more money in october or december um but right now we've just been raising money on sort of a when we need it basis so it's it we we haven't like i haven't gone out to raise 20 million or 50 million I don't think I need that. We're a licensing company. I just need to get to a point where I can start signing licenses. And then, you know, there's advances and royalties. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. And if you have any ideas or thoughts on that, um, you know, reach out to me. My email, by the way, is mark at venture starters.com. And I also host um, an event called venture starters where the largest community In the United States, of both founders and investors, and we have a Zoom meeting every Wednesday with between 100 and 500 people live every week, and I'm the host of that. But um, you know, I follow Ward and what you guys are doing, and so as a result, when Ward reached out um, at one point, I thought, yeah, let's get. I'd like to get to know his community and what you guys. Fantastic.
1: Thank you, Mark Well, let's just say that you definitely piqued our interest. So thank you very much for that presentation. And I'd like to invite uh, Evo Electric since we are talking about um, yeah, the decarbonization of vehicles.. Mm,
6: not sure if they're here. Who is
1: representing EVO Electric, accelerating the EV electrification transition? Mm, No takers, all right. Then I'm going to jump to Len Bland.
7: (laughs) Hi, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm good. Jumping to you because I know that you are here with us. Great, so you're with Nano Gas Environmental. And it's a company that is in recycling oil industry wastewater to save a dollar sixty per barrel of water and enhance oil productions by fifty percent. So I'll let you take it away and tell us more.
7: Yeah, let me uh, let me jump into the presentation here.
1: And I'll start my timer this time.
7: <laughs> so for this audience, I wanted to concentrate on uh, the the key market that we're going after environmentally. Uh, my name is Len Bland, I'm CEO of the company. We're raising three and a half million dollars for 17 and percent of the company. And we make, uh, we clean and energize water with tiny bubbles. So uh, I had, a, uh, I was running concept equity group. We prepare entrepreneurs for investment. We provide strategic and financial advisory services. Companies come to us and we were approached with this technology we were real. I realized it was world-changing and I just had to be part of it. Uh, so I'm going to introduce you to uh, one of the three markets we're going after. The three markets are all multi-billion dollar huge markets. Uh, we, uh, When you have uh, lagoons in the U.S. and all around the world, they get filled with sludge. They get filled with algae that could be uh, toxic uh, cyanobacteria. And it's getting worse because things are heating up. This is one uh, lagoon that. Uh, this is a picture of the lagoon before we we treated it. it would, the algae was so thick, bugs were walking on top of it, and the sludge had built up so much that they were starting to build up sludge islands. And they got a quote that it, uh, this 300-home community was going to have to pay a million dollars to dredge the lagoon in order to fix the problem. Uh, the key part of the problem for them is that the bacteria on the bottom of the pond uh, are starved for oxygen. There's so much sludge buildup, so much oxygen demand by those bacteria that they can't do their job. And so then you get this algae building up because it it feeds on the organic waste that's that the, bac- that the good bacteria are not getting. Uh, what we do... As we create nanobubbles in water. Bubbles are so small that their buoyancy is less than the surface tension of the liquid. And that means we can have 3,500 times more oxygen in the liquid. And you can see here a picture of what's going on. Uh, you get uh, the the gas actually stays in the liquid, the bubbles don't rise. And so, but they're so small, you can't see them with a light-based microscope. You can't see them with laser light and so uh, we're shining a laser light through this water and it's actually bouncing off clouds of nanobubbles in the water uh we applied this to a lagoon in west texas and in just the first four days the algae pretty much disappeared over time uh, we restored the lagoon and by restoring the lagoon i mean that uh, we got all the bacteria to go to work and really feast on the sludge. They ate up 95% of the organic sludge, and what that meant is, lagoons like this typically have, you know, three, three cells: bad, better, best. And then they might release water from the best cell. Well, the uh, we were treating the bad cell. And we cleaned up so much sludge that it was like creating a whole new cell, almost uh, 36% more space in the three lagoons. And the great thing was for the customer is that they got to, uh, they didn't have to pay over a million dollars for dredging. We solved their problem, and typically we would solve it for uh, uh, 85% less than what they would normally pay. Let me tell you a little bit about the team. I'm CEO. I was co-founder in Patricorp. Patricorp does back office processing for insurance agencies and brokerages. I sold off my investment for 600 times and the company later later on sold off uh, part of the company just recently for 149 million. Jeff Harden is our chief scientist. He's a six-time successful serial entrepreneur. His most notable business is he worked with the CDC And he worked with, uh, understood the financials as well. And he determined that uh, uh, people were dying from AIDS and they needed money for their medicine, but they couldn't work. So he started buying their life insurance policies. Before that, there was no institution buying life insurance policies. And he uh, created the first institutional uh, business to buy life insurance policies. While he was there, they earned 67% and the rate of return that became a multi-billion-dollar market. And Al Darzens is our PhD of molecular biology, our VP of R&D. He was uh, a research manager, uh, director of research at DuPont. He led uh, research at uh, Gas Technology Institute and uh, was group manager at uh, NREL. So he really understands all of this. Uh, one example lagoon, in four months, Cleaning up a lagoon, we can save seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. It might cost us one hundred thirty thousand, giving us an eighty-two percent gross margin. While the customer could be saving a couple million dollars. Thirty seconds. Uh, uh, oh, thank you. Uh, if we uh, if we get just uh, three hundred thirty-eight of our machines out in production by the end of five years, earning two hundred thousand in revenue. We've got over 550,000 in lifetime revenue. We're distributing through partners and we've got opportunities, for example, in Driggs, Idaho. We've got 10 granted patents and 15 pending. And again, we're seeking 35, uh, 3.5 million. After our next round, the owner would have 14, 14%. Uh, if we do make our 111 million by the end of five years, uh, we'd be worth over a billion dollars and the company would be an investor would earn 44 times their investment or 118% internal rate of return. We're spending the money on operations, equipment, licensing and sales and marketing. And uh, I mentioned there's other markets. So we have another multi-billion dollar market in oil and gas. And here's an example of water we treated in oil and gas taking the dirty water with oil in it and cleaning it up so it could be reusable by the oil industry. Thank
2: you.
1: Great. Thank you, Lynn, for that very clear presentation.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to jump in with the the first question I think is probably most important is, can you explain, maybe it was supposed to be meant to, to put into the oil and gas part, but what are the, the climate impacts of this technology that it can have
7: so the climate impacts are we need a way to handle the water that, that the the sludge and algae and the water that's out there. And, and so that's why I focused on that. On the oil and gas side, it's also water play where we are cleaning up that dirty wastewater right now. They they're putting it back down into the ground where it doesn't come, where it didn't come from, and it's causing earthquakes in Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, Oklahoma went from an average of two earthquakes a year in 2008 to over 800 earthquakes that were over three on the Richter scale by 2016, and uh, and in addition, we from a, a energy efficiency perspective, the oil industry spends all this money getting oil and water out of the ground. They actually pump out seven times more water than oil but that water doesn't become uh, reusable. They just inject it back down into the ground. We can enable them to use that water instead of fresh water. And in addition, we can enable them to get all the oil that they've already spent the energy to pull out of the ground so they didn't have to spend more energy to pull out even more oil when they shove oil back down into the ground.
2: So in essence, basically the play is to be able to save uh, on water production. There'll be more water available based off of this technology, correct?
7: Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a clean water play.
2: Dennis, did you have any
7: questions?
3: Yeah, sure. So I think obviously the technology is really core to this and um, you know we didn't spend a lot of time on that. Can you share a little bit more about the process for creating nano bubbles, and specifically the, the intellectual property you have around that? Is it chemical, is it mechanical? How should we think about um, the, the core technology behind what you're doing?
7: Yeah, so we have a mechanical process. What's beautiful about our technology is that we create nano bubbles without clogging. We can pass sand and grit through our system and it's not going to clog up. Uh, there are other ways to make it using membranes today. But and membranes are fine if you're going to go into a greenhouse where you've done reverse osmosis on the water already. But that's not what you find in the field. You don't find that in Uh, in lagoons where typically the water available is going to be that dirty sewage water. You don't find that in the oil field where the typical thing is going to be that uh, produced water, that oil industry wastewater. That's what helps us stand out. So we've got patents on the technology and how to apply it. And we just got an amazing new patent on uh, using nanobubbles going down underground to recover hydrocarbons. So it covers uh, anybody using that, using a process like that to uh, uh, bring more oil out of the ground.
3: Right. And so the best way to think about this, it sounds like there are other competing technologies, but this is more superior in a um, outdoor, uh, non-industrialized kind of environment. Is that that's the main target market and the-
7: yeah I, I think that's right anywhere the wa- where the available water is is dirty water you don't want to invest the energy that it takes to go through reverse osmosis to clean the water before you uh, before you're going to use it
3: got it so then it's not like a, a closed loop system i guess is is the way i'm thinking about it is there continuous cycling required like how does the system maintain the optimal amount of, of nano bubbles in the system to be able to
7: It's a continuous process system. We put in more nanobubbles than anybody else. So it's straightforward for us to have enough nanobubbles in the water. Uh, The more nanobubbles we put in, uh, the more active they are. It depends on what we're trying to do. If we're cleaning up uh, a sewage lagoon, you just need enough oxygen in the water to be at the perfect level for the bacteria. So that's another thing we do. We don't sell our equipment when we provide a service because we think that people don't understand how nanobubbles work well enough. And there's all kinds of people applying it uh, poorly in these industries. And so we provide a service. We provide the whole solution. So that's monitoring the oxygen. That's uh, bringing the oxygen generator, the power, all the pieces needed to make sure we're solving the customer's problem.
3: About it. And then just to piggyback on Silas's question, you're using this like in, let's say, in a case of restoration of ponds and lagoons, um, impact to like wildlife and fish and the I guess the value proposition in that case versus dredging.
7: yeah, it's beautiful. We've tested on growing fish faster, and the extra oxygen and in the, in the extra oxygen works great. When, after we treated that lagoon, we saw sandhill sand cranes and fish and turtles uh, coming back to the lagoon, uh, all kinds of wildlife feeding off basically the third you know, best lagoon.
3: Cool. And then just a little bit more, can you share uh, commercial traction, like where you have done this um, from a geographic perspective, what type of customers um, you've had and, and yeah.
7: Yeah, so uh, I talked about the lagoon we did in West Texas. Uh, we think the southeast, south, south, and southeast of the United States is really good because they have more of a year-round problem with these lagoons. But that doesn't mean there's not an opportunity up north. So we're looking at Idaho uh, for uh, a lagoon. They have they they have uh, some water treatment. Um, Systems there, they use bubblers. The bubblers don't work because the lagoon is too shallow, so uh, that's where nanobubbles really are are fantastic, and they're looking at spending three million dollars to dredge their lagoon, and we could do it for we quote we just quoted them seven hundred fifty thousand on the uh, treating oil industry wastewater side we've uh, been out in the field, we were, you know, it's in the oil industry, you need to be in Texas. So we were in West Texas for, um, for treating oil industry wastewater. We actually treated at a reclamation plant where they have the dirtiest, sludgiest water because they're tanking intake bottoms and in truck washout water, basically slop coming from the bottoms of oil and water tanks in the oil industry. And we were actually able to, to clean that up. Uh, and then uh, we've also uh, done, you know, a number of oil wells. So we did uh, four oil wells where we improve the production on each of the wells by at least 200%. And typically, uh, an oil well owner would be happy if we could get 25% increase uh, from a treatment. So that's, uh, it's fantastic
1: um and uh continuing on the projects to me it's a little bit like tragedy of the commons so how do you get these projects like do you go out to seek them or are they're finding you how how are you building your pipeline
7: uh you know we've had limited resources to do the kind of marketing we'd really like to do right now so we have great connections so for example our um uh, I'm just going to go back to the um, the presentation I was at and spend just a touch more time on this. So for the lagoon market, we are uh, establishing a network of, uh, I was just there, mm-hmm. establishing a network of distributors. So for example, Queen Infusion found this Driggs, Idaho opera, uh, uh, opportunity for us. We're also connected with IMR systems. They just signed an agreement to uh, sell our system. And, and then these folks can help us provide the service that we're looking to provide. And we're adding more people as we speak. In the oil industry, we our, uh, our um, technical advisor, who is a retired chemical engineer uh, working on oil wells all around the world, uh, he's now he has an economic interest in a new oil well company that just purchased some existing uh, 4500 existing wells For going in there they have oil left in their water and they're leaving we think and he thinks probably 10 percent of their production that they're paying somebody to take away will able to get enable them to get all that and that's going to be worth millions for them
2: what one question I have is in the particular use case of the oil and gas will they, Will these companies be just spending less money on cleaning up the water or will they have an uh, or will there be an additional income stream to be able to get to be able to have somebody else purchase that water? Somehow? Yeah,
7: there there are two income streams for the oil companies. So uh, one is selling the oil that we're getting for them. That they were putting down whole uh, uh, th- Another is. Uh, selling the water, uh, oil companies use that for new drilling. Uh, and yet, we're lowering the maintenance of what they're doing today, and they might not have to build a multi-million-dollar saltwater disposal well, which they're using to inject the water into the ground. Uh, on the on the um, lagoon side, it really is on the expense side. They're getting hit with regulatory requirements they have to fix their water uh and uh they're looking at spending millions of dollars and we can we can do that for you know 80% less than what they're what they're usually quoted
2: so with back to the oil and gas example have is it possible to consider doing a revenue share instead of just a, a service fee to then be able to scale up the revenue of the operations, uh, you know, based off of how much money you're saving or bringing to the table for them? You know, because obviously they don't have to spend the money to build the plant, but then they also have additional revenue streams. That could be a different type of business model. Is there, is there a reason why that has not been explored or, or is that something you're exploring?
7: We've looked at that. It makes it harder to make the initial sale. We want to have more traction before we move into that on an aggressive basis. We'd be happy to do revenue share. And there's opportunities if we really wanted to to, uh, partner with or, or, you know, if we were raising a lot more money to to buy our own oil wells and get all the benefit for ourselves while we run oil wells, you know, more environmentally efficient.
1: Great. If we have no further questions, then thank you very much, Len, for the great presentation and uh, good luck with your arrays. And thank with that, <laughs> I'd like to invite Eric, our last startup, to um, yeah present what they're working on. Welcome, Eric.
5: Thank you. I'll jump right into it. All right, can you see my screen okay? Great, thank you. So my startup is Eshow. Um, Eshow uh, builds, designs and builds holistic, regenerative, resilient, modular homes, technologies, and also conducts retrofits for existing homeowners and builders. The story, the backstory behind Eshow is that I am a consumer or was an intending consumer of the solution that did not exist yet. I spent approximately four or five years in deep research. Some, uh, I guess, two years ago realized that uh, Despite all of the data available online, um, despite all the efforts of local utility providers and um, people who were looking to build the efforts of sustainable solutions online, that it was still extremely difficult to find a click and play option essentially for sustainability. So what Isho is looking to do is to solve the problem of uh, the, I guess, the clunkiness, the complexity, the fragmentation and costly process of adopting a sustainable lifestyle. What we do is we help owners essentially, uh, builders and developers mentioned to adopt beyond sustainable lifestyles. We are leaning towards regeneration. And this again, for uh, a home system that we've created called Loop, um, but also doing retrofit systems um, in current markets in Colorado. Loop homes, and sorry guys, one second. The, there we go, I apologize. The thumbnails were hiding half of my slide. Um, So Loop Homes uh, is our first foray uh, architectural um, and engineered design of a modular housing system that is autonomous, prefabricated, and modular. modular. And when we use the word regenerative uh, in our materials, in our our narrative, uh, we mean it genuinely. And by that, we mean a home that comes off the assembly line, prefabricated with zero on-site construction requirements, That also has the ability to create potable water, to grow food indoors year round for the inhabitants of the home, eliminating human waste in the bathroom and the kitchen, and is powered by renewable energy. Also requires zero utility inputs on site. So there's no need for water, septic, sewer, or energy inputs. The footprint of each module is just over 200 square feet uh, and they're they're configurable to essentially any scale. Um, We offer four pre-configured models a studio unit at 207 square feet, plus an expandable deck, um, and then up to just under 1500 square feet for our three bedroom, Loop 3. This is a glimpse of the product. Uh, we're also taking a look at human wellness as well in our biomim- biomimetic design. This home uh, follows the golden ratio of architectural design, uh, Fibonacci's 12th, uh, which is known to be a uh, an architectural design or configuration that is soothing for both people and the landscape upon which the home sits. The the home is also built to not only fit within the natural landscape, uh, but also provide uh, panoramic vista views inside the home. So floor to ceiling windows uh, throughout the home uh, with R17 values. The homes are designed beyond passive well and LEED certification standards that exist today. um, And they also have 10 foot uh, vaulted ceilings inside the home. So very spacious for somewhat smaller homes. We're also taking the technology stack, both partnered and proprietary within Loop's ecosystem, and we're offering it to existing clients through a program we've called Revive Retrofits. Essentially, going into clients' homes, both uh, homeowners and commercial builders and developers, and helping them to accelerate their adoption of regenerative lifestyles. Um, Essentially, what we do is we uh, assess the home for existing energy, water, food, and wellness Um, And then we provide actual recommendations based on our findings. And then of course we sell the customer those solutions, uh, both again, proprietary and partnered solutions. And then we work with them through the life of their their purchases um, uh, on maintenance and, and other applications as well. We have three tiers of business and revenue model. One is Loop itself, the eco-luxury home. Um, it's currently our Tesla Roadster moment, if you will, based on the technology stack, but we are reverse engineering towards affordability within the next 18 to 20 months. Um, the homes range from 150,000 to 850,000 plus, depending on how they're configured. We also have a, cons- pardon me, a consumable subscription model, um, including home monitoring and automation. And we're also partnered with a few global providers of sustainable solutions for consumables, uh, including uh, dishwasher, detergent, linens, food, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially making it very realistic to be able to click on a purchase button on a website, order the home of your choice, but also have everything required to live a sustainable life delivered at the same time of your home. Uh,
1: 30 seconds.
5: 30 seconds. i better go faster then. Okay. All right. So at this point we've done all the heavy lifting we've engineered the product and we currently have around, uh, we're actually just under $300 million in pipeline currently and expect to deliver on about five to 10% of that in the first 18 months of launch. Um, We're post revenue with revive. Uh, We are started here in Colorado recently with a soft launch and we're launching in California in three weeks and we're ready to start manufacturing our home. Um, I guess I don't have time to go through all this. I'll skip over it. Um, uh, I apologize. I'll just skip over it and just answer questions. We have a we have a, a vast team of uh, experienced builders, engineers, architects, uh, retailers, um, and we're currently raising five point five million dollars um, on a convertible note or a safe, preferably. Um, we we believe that we'll be able to achieve twelve million dollars in revenue within the first twelve to fourteen months with those funds. And uh, would uh, be happy to answer any questions.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. Beautiful homes. <laughs> Looking forward to the first one being built.
2: I think you had it in your slides, but I wanted to ask about the the market size. Can you talk about that? and who's you know who's buying these things? Is this an existing market? Um, I would be curious. my uh, my dad and I have always been interested in tiny homes, so would be a little bit curious to hear about that market size.
5: Sure. So first, I'll I'll restate that um, while we do have different configurations available and they are customizable to any scale, um, they both fit and don't fit the definition of a tiny home. So, two of our pre configured models are over a thousand square feet, which effectively don't make them a tiny home. Um, The current uh, pipeline um, is primarily B2B clients, think hotel groups, uh, hospitality operators, uh, developers, et cetera, et cetera, with a very small portion. And I mean, under 1% of it currently being B2C clients, because it's not the focus. Um, As you're probably aware, there's, uh, if you've looked into me before, there's no note of uh, Eshow on my LinkedIn profile at this time. We do have a website, but it's beta and should be done in about a week or so. We've essentially been in stealth mode. So all the work that we've done so far has been behind the scenes. Um, the attempts to uh, actually you know I'm going beyond the answer of your question. Uh, I apologize for that.
2: No, no, that's okay. Um, I, I just wanted to understand, is there so you, you mentioned that the customers are B2B, but what's the, the size of the market? Do you have any like, oh, yeah, idea right now in terms of who do they already buy stuff like this? like what, what's the situation there?
5: Yeah, so our initial our, our initial persona, uh, to speak to that is, uh, I'll use an acronym, and I apologize for that. It's called LOHAS, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. Essentially, people who are already educated uh, on their pathway towards sustainability. So a family or individual organization who has already decided that they want to move towards sustainability or beyond sustainability, um, but also who is who has the funds to do so. So those are our, our primary clients. Uh, at, that, at that point, it states in several places on the deck, and I'll admit that our product is an eco-luxury offering. Um, I can talk to the square foot cost right now. So we know that the landed cost in the United States is around $600 a square foot, depending on the trim model, it can go up or down, but we are moving towards a $250 square foot option uh, again in the next 18 to 20 months or so by reverse engineering the tech stack um, to provide affordable affordability. The total market, um, our our sum, I'll, I'll just talk to that if that's okay. So our SOM, uh is around $350 million by year for ARR. Um, this is a recognizable market based on the conversations we're already having with large multinational hospitality groups and some hints that we're having around uh, our B2C client base. But we've also partnered recently with two significantly scaled uh, development groups who are working internationally who are looking to adopt our, our platform as well. That's, help. That's helpful. Thank you. Well, I guess one
2: last question, and then I'm sure Dennis has probably a lot more better questions than I do. But one last question I was curious about is I've, I've seen some companies doing um, homes in this nature. What are the, can you talk a little bit about the circularity of the building materials? You know, is, is this something where there's a lot of like very, very minimal waste? Can you just talk about that? I would be curious to know if there's any particular technology there as well.
5: Yeah. I um, mean, yeah, I'll speak first to the, the manufacturing process of, of uh, offsite construction or offsite assembly. So building these in factories and not on site, Um, but the products themselves as well have, pardon me, the products themselves as well have been supplied from uh, only the most discerning um, and unapologetically so uh, sources. As an example, every single piece of wood that may go into the trim. So this includes floors, walls, ceilings, decks, facade of loop is actually in partnership with a company called Cambium Carbon and we're exclusively sourcing their cambium smart wood. This wood, as an example, is a waste-diverted material. There's no virgin um, wood felling to uh, build uh, loop, for example, in this instance, we're looking at red oak, but there's also the application of hemp wood as well, uh, which is, of course, is a, is a very sustainable material. So waste diverted materials everywhere that we can. The insulation is hemp cellulose with a layer of silica gel, uh, the same aerogel blankets that are used on the International Space Station as an example. So we're using, again, fairly sustainable or as sustainable as we can find materials, um, exclusively so actually. Um, So the countertops are recycled paper, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the list goes on. So everything is either recycled, waste diverted, um, non-virgin with the exception of the faucets and the appliances, um, because we do not build appliances. Fair play.
1: Do you have a comparison of your, I guess, uh, I don't know, 1,000 square foot home compared to a normal one like the environmental impact?
5: We're working on LCA with Greenleaf currently. So lifecycle analysis of the product, but we just, again, we're, we're fairly new. We're just, we're just launching our website and we'll, we'll pop up on LinkedIn and social media here in the next two or three weeks. Um, but no, we haven't finished that entirely. We know the cost comparisons and we know the, um, the efficacy of the uh, build in terms of structural and engineering. And then again, a comparison relative to lead well and uh, Passive House. Um, but for each material compared, uh, no, uh, I would be stating something fictitious if I gave you a number today.
1: Yeah, I think it would be interesting to see the environmental impact and also cost savings if everything you're saying is uh, renewable or self-sufficient.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we're we're working on that. There's a lot to dive into. It's a fairly large ecosystem mm-hmm. and a fairly small footprint um, in terms of food production, water recycling, um, energy savings, et cetera, et cetera.
3: I jump in for... Any questions? Great. Uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you for the presentation and for how fun to give us a, a sneak peek of what you're working on. Um, I love the the home design on the second slide; is really cool. Um, I'd love to ask you about kind of the inspiration on that and everything, but I'm sure that's probably better for offline. Um, and I assume the name isho is is inspired by uh, ja- the Japanese word meaning together. Is that right? That be mm-hmm. yes? okay? Awesome. Um, Curious on around the business. So you mentioned there's two businesses. There's a retrofit business and a prefabricated home business. What's the rationale for doing both? They both seem like pretty challenging markets, to be honest, to get into. Just curious, you know, how you're balancing and and why you made the the choice to do both.
5: Uh, Yeah, so first it was an idea to get our tech and install teams feet wet or hands dirty, whichever analogy you'd like to use. Um, I really didn't want to wait until the homes were in the wild to determine how we would serve our clients out in the market. Um, so the idea was we'd do a soft launch, uh, a short run of maybe a dozen or so installs. Um, but the relevance of applying the technology now in the customer service base, uh, building out the back end, et cetera, has, has um, deemed itself invaluable. There's, there's There's so much value in what we're doing currently. And the market demand for holistic approaches that are transparent um, is, is fairly sizable. So this is kind of like a, a why, why not give it a shot, uh, to be honest with you. So right now, our team is learning how to engage with our clients, to respond quickly to inquiries, uh, again, to build out our back end of, of, of tool sets. Um, and to be honest with you, um, it's uh, th- there's so much overlap. Um, between the two, as you might imagine, because the tech stack or the solution stack for Revive, which is the retrofit side of things, comes literally out of loop. Um, so we're not searching for a new supply chain. We're not dealing with with new partners. It's all the same technologies. Um, so that that was the, the, the indication to persist a little bit longer with it. And to be honest with you, I would say that um, because our Q4 this year soft launch um, is looking to yield significant results in terms of revenue. um, It's also something that I can't ignore. I would say that the intention initially was to not raise funds and to just grow this organically and to use the revenue at Revive to continue to bolster our work at Loop. Um, But um, I have decided that because of how quickly things are starting to come together, it might make sense to get a cash injection to just accelerate all this.
3: Great. Thank you. And um, I mean, the more I hear about the business, it sounds like it's, you know, really like a design and integration play. Like, you know, when I think of typically I think of prefabricated homes, I'm thinking about, you know, companies that are innovating on the production process and shortening the construction timeline, efficiency and cost and that type of thing. That's not what you're doing. Is that correct?
5: Uh, It's I mean, it's a small it's a small part of it. Um, Again, this this started as a passion project for me, which um, as the word started to spread of what I was creating, designing, and my team started to build around the work that I wanted done for my family, um, the interest grew significantly, um, which led me to believe I was on to something. Um, it's, it's honestly... I think we're at a time that we have the technologies available and or there are just a few other things that we need to innovate around. Uh, as an example, ESHO um, is also innovating around uh, water, atmospheric water collection, um, energy creation through biomimetics uh, and food management in the residential footprint because the technologies aren't there yet. So that they're a part of our raise is to actually do our first POC manufacturing runs with those three technological solutions that we've engineered over the last little while. Um, I just think that homes can be better um, across the board. Uh, I also think that there can be a solution that fits all in terms of not only cost and accessibility eventually, um, which is on our roadmap, um, but also the fact that they can nurture and heal. And again, it's just a consumer response as as somebody who lives in a home and has a family um, that we continue to churn out low cost, quick solution boxed, home solutions um, that are detrimental to both the environment and the people living within them. So that's the mission, to be honest with you, is I know we can do better and I intend to give it a try at least.
3: So this is like the the first iteration is like the the Tesla Roadster, but ultimately you aim to get to like a model three where you're using the same design principles and you're able to mass produce things at scale and bring the cost down ultimately for the everyday consumers at the,
5: Absolutely. Um, We're intentionally stacking the first release of Loop um, with the highest trim models. I mean, we have voice activated faucets. They're a luxury. We don't absolutely need them. Um, We're we're using top, top of the end Bosch and Thermador appliances. We don't absolutely need to use them. We're making this as beautiful and sexy as we can so that we have some adoption, again, from B2B clients and then some discerning B2C clients. But we also have designed this thing to be bomb proof uh, almost almost literally um, you know to both California and flora engineering standards and sort of structural mechanical electrical plumbing um, we can swap out the steel frame which is super robust and heavyweight to a timber or other alternative material frame uh, as an example to significantly reduce costs just on that one front so we have our eyes again on around a $200 $250 square foot version two um, while this one will still maintain as well or, or stick around at around $600 a square feet, though that $600 a square foot cost landed, to be honest with you, is uh, an early cost. I'm not considering automated manufacturing, supply chain leveraging in terms of volume purchases, et cetera. So I know that it will come down. But even at that, we're launching at $600 a square feet with around an 18 to 22 percent profit margin for loop one. Um, so it's it's healthy enough to keep us going along. But I know we can sharpen our pencils as we go.
3: Great. Right. And uh, last question from my side. Can you talk a little bit about the team? I know you're just kind of still in the early stages, but right. who's assembled? Uh, there's lots of pieces you're working on. I'd love to know more about the team itself.
5: Yeah. So, uh, Ben, our, I mean, we have uh, seven full time employees. Um, so, uh, we also have a, a total of 13 um, who are engaged as and when needed. Uh, we'll pull them in when revenue increases or when funding arrives, essentially. Um, but our team spans a range from biomimetic architects and engineers um, to uh, manufacturing partners. So that's actually, I'll stick with that one for just a second. Uh, I have a background in controlled environment agriculture and modular manufacturing. I uh, brought my last company to manufacturing in three countries within two years of launch. So I've, I've been through that before, but I didn't want to focus on it this time. So I found a regional manufacturing partner in modular homes and modular home setting here in the state of Colorado, where I'm located currently, who's got over 20 years of experience doing just that. Um, so we've been dedicated, pardon me, we've been provided a dedicated manufacturing team for the first 19 months as per our contract. Um, so I don't need to sweat those details. So we have a, a deep uh, deep experience in modular home manufacturing, logistics, transportation, et cetera, supply chain management. Um, and, and then the rest of it is really on uh, engineering uh, and product design, uh, and uh, which is part me and part another one of our team members. And then the rest of it is storytelling and narrative, marketing and PR, if you will. Uh, that, that gives you the gist of it. Other than that, on the revive side, we've we've stolen away uh, two, uh, one current. Uh, be careful what, what I say about this. So one current and one ex Tesla slash Solar City team member have joined the revive team uh, for the installs. Um, we've got them excited about that platform and uh, we've just picked up a national lead for uh, Revive as well, an ex-WeWork executive um, who helped bring that company national, or international pardon me, back in the day in terms of real estate procurement and team building um, to help build out our team starting in California but then across the nation as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Eric. Um, yeah. I think maybe if we want to... Uh, wrap up, um, we can ask all the, um, startup, uh, presenters and our panelists to share their, um, favorite or, uh, most excited about startup from tonight. How about we start with Eric since you just presented?
5: <laughs> oh boy. Uh, sure. Going back to, uh, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on Len for a second. Um, my my vertical farming background had me working with providers in nanobubble technologies, and I can speak to the efficacy um, and uh, almost magical characteristics that we experienced in our farms um, previously. Um, I know that uh, Len, your work is currently outside of the scope of the residential footprint, uh, but there's also tremendous opportunity there as well uh, on both the vertical farming side and loops homes, et cetera, et cetera. So I see a lot of potential synergies in in Len's pitch, um, and uh, obviously, well, uh, everybody. Um, to be honest with you, it was all great, um, but I, I relate to Len the most because I've I've played with those technologies before and they're really cool. Thanks.
1: Great. Lynn, housing
5: Uh, the.
7: So outside of our technology, I was intrigued by what Mark was talking about. I can think of places to take that outside the industries, depending on how it works. Uh, But he's got a tiger by the tail. If he can do that, it's going to, it could be world changing, which is very cool. That's what turns me on.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And Mark? if you're with us. I
6: have have ideas for both Eric and Len. So Eric, I just sent you a link. Take a look at this. This is brand new. Nobody's seen it. It's truly blackout windows that are true blackout, like 100% blackout. And um, and the manufacturers in Minnesota, and um, if you're interested in adding that or considering adding it to your houses, I personally believe that if you sleep in total blackout rooms, it's good for your health. So, you know, if you're going to also address everything, health is a piece of it. Uh, Len, I uh, sent you that link to Empire Organics. If you send me an email, then I can just forward that email to the team and they can engage with you immediately because you're right. What we have is a machine that actually delivers and that it's patented and this is... I think the key to making even your life easier. So we would love to, I'm sure we would love to collaborate with you because uh, we're doing similar work. So I'd like to just hook you up with my team. And I thank everybody for, you know, just being interested in letting me even come to this, including Ward, I appreciate him.
1: We love it, love all the connections that we're making right on the show. Um, and last but not least, Eben. before we move into our panelists.
4: Thank you. Um, I think I really like the idea of Eric's company. Um, I think I'm always interested in future housing, and I think um, this is. Um, I would say um, I'm very looking forward to the company launch in Q4. Thank
1: you very much. All right, Silas.
6: Just add one quick item <laughs> for Eric real quick. I'm so sorry, Eric. Can't you just get orders that and work with a bank? You know, because it's real estate. So can't, I mean, isn't there a way of getting purchase orders and taking that paper and turning it into money? I've done that many times in the past for other industries, never yours. But I would think that if you have the right bank, you might not need investors as much as you might
5: just need a great bank. Uh, can I answer that question very quickly? Um, I'll, I'll say that we've met with several A-lenders, including banks already, but we're also uh, trying to re- not reveal too much here. We're, are, we're working with a large developer on a 360-home project, um, which is intended to launch in March next year. So it's likely that we'll be off to the races then already, and they've adopted a, a very unique um, financing model for homeowners that includes decentralized finance, uh, but I'll I'll stop at that. So yeah, gotcha. we're looking at all the angles. It's it's possible we won't need to raise funds, but I'm certainly um, excited to get all these things going, uh, particularly revive because there's so much demand in the state of California already, and we we've, we've just set foot there. So, but thank you, thank you, Mark.
2: Awesome, I can jump in. So my my favorite of all the the pitches today and all the startup ideas in general would would be Uh, isho with eric i really i I obviously i mentioned a little bit i'm very a big fan of design and and houses my dad's a carpenter by trade so there's a little bit of interest there but i do think there's a couple things that are interesting to me about it is the if you can achieve this the outcome kind of the the roadmap that you mentioned kind of following the the tesla uh, model if you will i believe you could really see a really big impact, not just on the climate and people living sustainably, but also lowering the barrier to entry for homeownership, which is something that people of my generation complain about all the time. It's just extremely difficult. So that'd be my hope in the long run is that you can get to that point, obviously you know, understanding to focus on B2B at the beginning. I also really think that the, uh, the idea of the recurring revenue from the other services is a really brilliant way to help kind of pad the, the profits to keep things going and just making it easy for people right there are a lot of people who are willing to to be sustainable but they're not going to spend you know 40 hours a week researching everything they have to do to become sustainable they want somebody to have it done for them so i think that that's really generally speaking quite interesting my biggest concerns in the future would be just talent um can you find enough people to install these because obviously uh, a lot of (laughs) there's not necessarily a lot of uh skilled labor to go around Especially if you start scaling massively, so that'd be the only big concern I have. But otherwise, I think that was I think it was a great pitch. I really love what you guys are doing, and looking forward to seeing seeing where you go in the future. On no, to Dennis,
3: round it out. Uh, so first of all, thank you everybody for all the presentations. Really great group of uh, mission driven companies uh, doing a diverse set of things. So really enjoyed uh, today's program. Uh, my selections are a little bit biased uh, by the work that I do. Um, in uh, advanced materials and um, energy transformation and this type of thing. Um, again, very intrigued by, I would say, rain ions is really interesting for me. Intrigued by what Mark is working on. Uh, at the same time, no offense, Mark, also very skeptical uh, of, of the, the solution. But what makes it interesting to me is obviously a coding is pretty simple and easy and can be applied to a variety of things. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting applications, I think, for this technology and, and ways to make an impact. Also, having an automotive background, I'm really interested in those specific applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree that, you know, I think one challenge that they'll have as a company going forward is if, if these claims are true, and this technology even has a fraction of the potential that he's alluding to, uh, it could very well lead to death by testing. Many large companies asking for multiple tests over over and over. And that can be quite time-consuming and costly. Um, so I think thinking through how to get past that, of course, is is um, really important. Also really enjoyed the presentation from Alain and Nanogas. Uh, really interested in that. Would love to ha- talk offline and understand applications to um, my line of work. And uh, appreciated uh, Bitvisor and what they're doing as well. Uh, so thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Dennis. And yes, a huge uh, thank you to all of you who presented your businesses. uh, Very different, but it's, I want to (laughs) say, a little bit refreshing to see some businesses that's not pure SaaS. (laughs) So that's always nice um, to see. Yeah, absolutely. All the... Yeah, very inspiring people working on these uh, big climate uh, tech problems. And thank you to Silas and to Dennis for joining us today to provide the um, very insightful questions. So really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, And hopefully we see the connections come to fruition from this session. So, wish you a great rest of the day or beginning of your day, depending on where you're located. And thank you very much. <laughs> bye bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, presented by Forward VC. I'm your host, Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's Angel Syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of The Startup Tank, please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a credit investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.